Hello, this is Father John Arthur or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 63rd installment, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. The 133 presentations made by Pope John Paul II between the years 1979 and 1984. We are indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we are using... In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ spoke the words to which we have devoted a series of reflections in the course of almost a whole year. When he explains to his listeners the true meaning of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, Christ expresses himself in this way. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. It seems that these words refer also to the vast spheres of human culture, especially to those of artistic activity, which we have recently discussed in several Wednesday meetings. Today we will devote the final part of these reflections to the problem of the relation between the ethos of the image or of the description and the ethos of viewing or listening, of reading, or of other forms of cognitive reception by which one encounters the content of the work of art or of audiovision understood in the broad sense. Here we return once again to the problem already noted, whether and in what measure the human body, in all the visible truth of its masculinity and femininity, can be a subject of works of art, and thus a subject of that specific social communication for which such a work is intended. This question concerns even more the contemporary mass culture connected with audiovisual technology. Can the human body be such a model or subject, given that this is connected, as we know, with objectivity, without choice, which a little earlier we called anonymity, and which seems to bring with it a serious potential threat to the whole sphere of meanings that belong to the body of man and woman due to the personal character of the human subject and the character of communion of interpersonal relations. One can add at this point that the expressions pornography or pornovision despite their ancient etymology, appear in language relatively late. The traditional Latin terminology used the word obscenia, thereby indicating everything that must find itself before the eyes of spectators, that must be surrounded by fitting discretion, that cannot be presented without any choice to human view. When we ask the above question, we realize that de facto, in the course of whole epochs of human culture and artistic activity, the human body has been and is such a model or subject of works of visual art, just as the whole sphere of love between man and woman, and also connected with it, the reciprocal self-giving of masculinity and femininity in their bodily expression has been, is, and will be the subject of literary narrative. Such a narrative found its place also in the Bible, above all in the text of the Song of Songs, which we will have to take up on another occasion. See Theology of the Body 108-113. through 113. Indeed, one must note that 
in the whole history of literature or art, in the history of human culture, this subject seems to be particularly frequent and is particularly important. In fact, it concerns a problem that is in itself great and important. We have shown this from the beginning of our reflections, following the footsteps of the biblical text, which reveal to us the right dimension of this problem, namely the dignity of man in his male and female bodiliness, and the spousal meaning of femininity and masculinity inscribed in the whole interior and at the same time visible structure of the human person. Our earlier reflections did not intend to cast doubt on the right to this subject. Their goal is simply to show that its treatment is connected with a particular responsibility, whose nature is not only artistic but also ethical. The artist who takes up this subject in any sphere of art or by audiovisual technologies must be conscious of the full truth of the object, of the whole scale of values connected with it. He must not only take them into account abstractly, but also live them rightly himself. This requirement corresponds also to that principle of purity of heart, which must, in determinate cases, be carried over from the existential sphere of attitudes and forms of behavior to the intentional sphere of artistic creation or reproduction. It seems that the process of such creation intends not only an objectification of the model, and in some way a new process of materializing, but at the same time an expression in such an objectification of what one can call the artist's creative idea, in which his inner world of values, and thus also his way of living the truth of his object manifests itself. In this process, there is a characteristic transfiguration of the model or the matter, and particularly of that which man is, namely, the human body in the whole truth of its masculinity or femininity. From this point of view, there is a very important difference, for example, between painting or sculpture and photography or film. The viewer who is invited by the artist to look at his work communicates not only with the objectification and thus in some way with a new process of materializing the model or the matter, but at the same time he communicates with the truth of the object that the author in his artistic materializing has successfully expressed with his own specific media. In the course of the various epochs, from antiquity down, and especially in the great period of classical Greek art, there are works of art whose subject is the human body in its nakedness, the contemplation of which allows one to concentrate in some way on the whole truth of man, on the dignity and beauty, even supersensual beauty of his masculinity and femininity. These works bear within themselves, in a hidden way, as it were, an element of sublimation that leads the viewer through the body to the whole personal mystery of man. In contact with such works, we do not feel pushed by their content toward looking to desire as the Sermon on the Mount puts it. In some way, we learn the spousal meaning of the body, 
which corresponds to and provides the measure for purity of heart. But there are also works of art, and perhaps still more often reproductions, that stir up objections in the sphere of man's personal sensibility, not because of their object, because in itself the human body always has its own inalienable dignity, but because of the quality or the way of its artistic reproduction, depiction, and representation. Decisive for this mode and for this quality can be the various coefficients of the work or reproduction, as well as many circumstances, often of a more technical than artistic nature. Through all of these elements, as we know, the same fundamental intentionality of the work of art or the product of the technologies involved becomes in some way accessible to the viewer, the reader, or the listener. If our personal sensibility reacts with objection and disapproval, the reason is that in this fundamental intentionality, together with the objectification of man and his body, we discover as something inseparable from the work of art or its reproduction the simultaneous reduction of the human person to the rank of an object, of an object of enjoyment, intended for the satisfaction of mere concupiscence. And this is opposed to man's dignity, also in the intentional order of art and reproduction. By analogy, one should apply the same point to the various fields of artistic activity. In each case, according to its specific character, and likewise to the various audiovisual technology. Paul VI's encyclical Humani Vitae underlines the necessity of creating a climate favorable to education and chastity, and he thereby intends to affirm that living the human body in the whole truth of its masculinity and femininity must correspond to the dignity of that body and to its meaning in building the communion of persons. One can say that this is one of the fundamental dimensions of human culture, understood as an affirmation that ennobles everything that is human. This is why we have devoted this brief sketch to the problem, which can, in synthesis, be called the ethos of the image. The image in question serves in a singular way to make man visible, understanding that phrase in the more or less direct sense. The sculpted or painted image expresses man visually. A play or ballet expresses him visually in another way. Film in yet another, even a literary work, intends in its own way to arouse inner images by making use of the wealth of human imagination or memory. What we have called ethos of the image cannot be considered in abstraction from the correlative component, which one would have to call ethos of seeing. The whole process of communication is contained between these two components, regardless of the vastness of the circles described by this communication, which in this case is always social. The creation of the climate favorable to education and chastity contains these two components. It contains, so to speak, a reciprocal circuit that takes place between the image 
and the act of seeing, between the ethos of the image and the ethos of seeing, just as the creation of the image in the wide and differentiated sense of the term imposes on the author, artist, or reproducer obligations not only of an aesthetic but also of an ethical nature. So also looking, understood in the same broad analogy, imposes obligations on the recipient of the work. Authentic and responsible artistic activity tends to overcome the anonymity of the human body as an object without choice, seeking, as has already been said, through its creative effort such an artistic expression of the truth about man and his male and female bodiliness, that this truth is, so to speak, assigned as a task to the viewer, and in the widest radius, to every recipient of the work. It depends upon him, in turn, whether he decides to make his own effort by drawing near to such truth, or whether he remains only a superficial consumer of the impressions, that is, one who exploits the encounter with the anonymous subject body, only on the level of sensuality, which by its nature reacts to its object precisely without choice. Here we conclude this important chapter of our reflections on the theology of the body, the point of departure of which were the words Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, words that are valid for man at all times and in all places, for historical man and for every one of us. The reflections on the theology of the body would not be complete, however, if we did not consider other words of Christ, namely those in which he appeals to the future resurrection. To these, therefore, we propose to devote the next cycle of our considerations. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 63rd Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. This 63rd Catechesis is the end of chapter 2, the appendix of chapter 2, of the first part of the Theology of the Body of Pope John Paul II. The first part focuses our attention on the words of Christ. What did Jesus say? Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. So chapter 1 reminds us that Jesus appeals to the beginning when the Pharisees asked the question, Moses permitted a bill of divorce. Is it lawful for a man to do this? And Jesus says, It was not this way in the beginning. It was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses permitted a bill of divorce. A man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And from there, the Holy Father speaks to us about the original holiness, the original unity, the original innocence, and sadly, the original sin with its consequences. First and foremost, among the consequences of original sin, concupiscence, a tendency to do evil. The second chapter of Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body, Jesus appeals to the human heart. The Lord Jesus takes the Decalogue to the next level. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say whoever looks with a disordered desire upon another has already committed adultery in the heart. So now we're supposed to be pure in our deeds as well as in our actions, in our desires. Jesus appeals to the human heart. This is the fourth part of the appendices, the appendix to chapter 2 of part 1. The appendix of chapter 2 has to do with the ethos 
of the body in art and media. So the ethos, the morals, uh, the good actions we should do and the evil actions we should avoid, the good desires we have and the evil desires we should avoid or repent. God forbid we've had any of them. The ethos of the body, how is the body used? How is it depicted? How is it observed? How is it celebrated in arts and media? In culture, the Holy Father is reminding us that because the human body is not insignificant, the human body is part of the human being. We are not just our bodies. We are not just our souls. We are embodied incarnate spirits. And so the way the body is treated is in part how the person is treated. And so that is where the ethical dimension comes in. In this catechesis, the 63rd of the Theology of the Body, again, the Holy Father calls up the distinction between pornography and pornovision. Remember, before he has told us that pornography is writing about that subject, whereas the pornovision is a depiction in pictures or other media of that topic. The Holy Father shows his hand when it comes to this catechesis because he is a philologist by training, so he is an expert in word usage and origins, and he points out that though the etymology of those terms, pornography, pornovision, is ancient, what they talk about, as words, they're relatively late in language. That's interesting. The Holy Father reminds us, or teaches us, that the traditional Latin terminology is obscenia, so that's the root of the word obscene. The Holy Father in this 63rd Catechesis, in the appendix on the ethos of the body in art and media, points out that everything that must not find itself before the eyes of spectators, that's what pornography is, that's what pornovision is, that is what obscenity is. Not everything needs to be put out there as it were. The Holy Father is calling us to modesty, to chastity, to purity, not only in our deeds, but in our desires. We shouldn't want to go to that sort of entertainments, so-called entertainments. We're reminded in this catechesis of the different spheres of meaning. Some people see the human body only as an object of sense pleasure. If it feels good, do it. How long have we heard that kind of speech? If it's beautiful, you should look at it. But the Holy Father's reminding us that there are pleasures which are reserved or which are proper to holy marriage. He reminds us that within the spheres of meaning, one, and if not a central one, is the spousal meaning of the body, this husband for this wife, this man for this woman. And that's echoing what our Lord said when he appealed to the beginning. At last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and the two shall become one. What God has joined, let no man put asunder. This is the spousal meaning of the body. And the nuptial embrace is proper only to spouses. This is living the truth, living the truth in love, the truth about the human person, the truth about the depiction or the description of the human person in writing and in art, whether visual arts of painting or sculpting or drama, or the light. Pope John Paul II calls us not only to live the truth, but also to recognize the truth of the object, the object which is the human person, who is at once both object and subject, and then the truth of the object of art or media, 
how is it that a human person should be depicted? Should a human person be depicted in art like a slab of meat is depicted in a butcher's catalog? I don't think so. There's a difference between a rack of lamb and a human being. That is the truth, and it is the truth which will set us free. The human body, Pope John Paul II teaches us, always has its own inalienable dignity. Earlier, the Holy Father had reminded us of the indignities which were part of the terror of the Nazi death camps. Even in those wicked and terrible situations, those human beings who suffered were human beings. And those people who did the torture, who did the terrible things, they too are human beings with an inalienable dignity, a dignity which cannot be taken away, no matter how wicked we are or have become. Especially for us who have faith, we know that Redemption is a possibility, and not only a possibility, it is the very will of God, not the death of the sinner, but that we be converted and live. This, in part, is why Pope John Paul II went to the trouble to give his 133 catecheses on man and woman. He created them, a theology of the body, that we might be converted and live, recognizing not only our own inalienable dignity, but also that of our neighbors, of every human being, whoever has been, who is, who will be. The Holy Father was anxious that some not take him out of context when it comes to art and media. And he's not saying there can be no depictions of the human body. He praises uh, classical Greek art, and he makes it distinct from so much of the mass culture, not the holy sacrifice of the mass, but the popular culture, we would call it, a mass-produced, stamp-it-out culture. When evaluating a piece of art, the Holy Father wants us to check or to look at, to evaluate the quality, the artistic reproduction, what is depicted, the presentation, all these things which were so much a part of the classical Greek model. The Holy Father is encouraging. Does the depiction in question, does it show dignity and beauty, or does it create a a desire in the heart, and not all the desires in our hearts are necessarily wholesome if we recall our Lord's warning. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, whoever looks upon another, even if the other is just depicted in a painting or a photograph or a streaming video on the web. If we look with the immodest, the impure, if we look with the lustful desire upon these images, even in the media, it is a sin in our hearts and can lead to further sin in our bodies. It is a degradation of the other person, the person so depicted, even if they willingly posed or acted in such a way, knowingly. Pope John Paul II continues this 63rd catechesis, man and woman, he created them a theology of the body by reminding us about the whole personal mystery of man. So often we are content to quantify as we're able to do, so-and-so is so tall, weighs so much, has such color hair and such color eyes, lives at such-and-such such a place, has these characteristics, has these parents, siblings, has this education, and, and we allow that to exhaust the mystery of the person. But the Holy Father is reminding us that there is more to us than meets the eye. We are more than just so many blanks on a resume so much more than a celluloid can capture. As beautiful as the Piata is, the beautiful carving Michelangelo made of the Blessed Mother with her son, 
lying lifeless in her lap. As beautiful as the depiction is, the Blessed Mother is more than can be depicted there, and her son no less more mysterious, true God and true man. Let us never forget the whole personal mystery of the human being. Pope Paul VI, in his encyclical letter on the transmission of human life, Humani Vitae, calls us to create a climate favorable to education and chastity. And this is at least the third time Pope John Paul II has cited that passage of that encyclical, which he, in fact, had advised Pope Paul VI about while Karl Wojtyla was still the Archbishop of Krakow. What can we do to create a climate favorable to education and chastity? Pope John Paul II did what he could by his Wednesday catechesis on the theology of the body, by his publication of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, by his preaching and exhortation and example. And that's good for him to have done it, but now it is our turn. What are you and I doing to create a climate favorable to education and chastity? Do I dress modestly? How about yourself? Do you dress modestly? Do we encourage others to dress modestly? Or do we reward the immodest? In order to create a climate of chastity, we need to be chaste ourselves. We need to reject sins of lust in our hearts and in our deeds. Disordered desires need to be discarded. When Pope Paul VI taught us in Humani Vitae to create a climate favorable to education and chastity, it is as if he said, we are to live the human body in the whole truth of its masculinity and femininity. That's how John Paul II interprets the passage of Paul VI. To create a climate of ch- favorable to the education and chastity is to live the human body in the whole truth of its masculinity and femininity. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? The nominalists say there is no such thing as meaning at all, but they mean it when they say it, so they're self-contradictory. We are made in the image of God, and this not only in our souls, God is a spirit, and our soul is the spiritual part of us, no doubt, but in the incarnation when Mary said, yes, God became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, a glory as of an only son, in whom we become adopted sons and daughters, masculinely and femininely, accordingly, by grace and faith in baptism. In this last installment, the 63rd Catechesis, it is the conclusion of chapter 2 of the Theology of the Body, the Holy Father is reminding us about the ethos of the image and the ethos of seeing. Here, art and media are not concerned merely with aesthetics, but also with ethics. What good should I do? What evil should I avoid or repent if I've done it? Not only is it beautiful, but is it right? Jesus' words spoken in the Sermon on the Mount, including the words about chastity, whoever looks with a disordered look upon the other has already committed adultery in the heart. These words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are valid for man, for women, for children, of all times, in all places, for historical man, for every one of us. It would seem Pope John Paul II is not a relativist, and neither are we who call Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior, for he himself has said the truth will set you free. And for 133 encounters, 
with the good people visiting him in Rome, our Holy Father proclaimed the same truth in love. Jesus Christ, crucified and glorified, who is risen in his human body, which he has for all eternity. And it is not only the Lord Jesus Christ who has his body. You and I, we will be raised on the last day. We will be brought to heaven in God's mercy or sent elsewhere in his justice. We too will have our bodies for all eternity to enjoy the bliss of heaven or the punishments of hell. This too is part of the truth of the gospel to which we are dedicated thanks be to God. Until next time, God bless you.